Hello, and welcome to today's episode of In Fellowship, the podcast where we explore community building through a chapter-by-chapter read of Lord of the Rings. My name is Anna. And my name is Ellen. And in today's episode, we are discussing Book 1, Chapter 4, A Shortcut Through Mushrooms, exploring how community is built through evolving relationships. Anna. How are you feeling about today's episode? I am feeling really intrigued as to where this conversation will go because it it is our shortest chapter to date, Mm. but also is the maybe broadest theme that we've encountered. So I'm interested to see how this pairing will um, encourage or deter our conversation about the chapter. This chapter has one of my most remembered quotes in it. Shortcuts make long delays. Mm-hmm. And I think about that pretty frequently when in my life I'm like, oh, I can just, I'll just scoot over this way. But as we learn, it frequently leads to error. So mm-hmm. excited to talk about that. That's right. <laughs> but for our theme, which you said is our broadest to date, and I'm interested to hear more about why you think that, do you have a story for us that you would like to share about? evolving relationships. I do, and I think it ties nicely to what you've just said about your your favorite or most remembered quote from the episode. So, as I was thinking about evolving relationships, I was thinking about the journey that our travelers are taking across the Shire and how they're encountering all kinds of new spaces in this attempt to shortcut to their destination. And it occurred to me that I had a very similar experience when I first moved to where I'm living now for a job. So it may have even been for the interview for my current position. And I was living just outside of town, which is approximately a 30-mile drive or so. And I had this kind of old beater car, and so I drove into the interview had my interview, you know, it's a it's a big day, you're stressed, you're trying to, you know, relay your experience to, to total strangers in the hopes that they judge you favorably. Um, and so by the end of it, you just feel sapped, regardless of if it's one interview or several interviews, it just always feels like it takes so long. So I get back into my car and I realize, all right, I'm going to have to go get gas. And I'm very concerned about how much gas I have in my car and whether I can get to the next gas station that I remember that's actually on my trip home. So in my mind, I decided that it would be quicker to drive around the area where the interview was being held and just find a gas station because how hard could that be? And I find myself in a myriad one-way situation where I it's not as simple to go around the block as I thought it was going to be able to. It's weirdly residential in this space that also holds the building where I did the interview, so it doesn't have a lot of like stores or signage to indicate where I need to be going. And though I'm not entirely sure where I am in respect to where I needed to return to on my voyage, I knew I was kind of going in the wrong direction. And so I'm becoming increasingly more frustrated, perhaps because my spiritual and emotional bank at that point is relatively well spent. And I'm just freaking out and finally find this gas station you know, I've just sweat through everything I'm wearing. I feel so bedraggled by the time I get there. Fill up my car, 
finally map my way home and and head out. And the perhaps most ironic bit about this is the gas station is like two blocks from where I did my interview and now I work. And I drive past this gas station every day (laughs) on my way into work. And it was just such a reminder of how new I was in the community. I wasn't familiar with um, the, the layout of the city. I wasn't familiar with sort of how to ask or find things. I was really worried about being able to find my way home. So I think I had already mapped it on my phone. And that's why I didn't want to like X that out because I wanted to be able to just leave right away from the gas station. Um, and now that I'm so familiar and that I'm so comfortable where I live, I'm, I feel much more assured in determining some of these shortcuts and I feel much more comfortable plotting a path. Um, And so my evolution of relationship was really in the space that the community holds and how familiar I was with that. I cackled when you said that it was only two blocks away from your original destination because that is hilarious to me. I am glad that you picked a story that has a positive evolution of relationships because, you know, a relationship with a place or with a person, it can improve or it can sour or it can just change, you know, neutral to neutral. But I'm glad you picked one that you have strengthened your relationship with this community and with this place because there are some good instances of that in this book especially, but also in this chapter that I am excited to talk about with you. I would agree. And I think that is a great place then to start with what even happens in this chapter, Ellen. So in this chapter, it begins with them leaving the High Elves, and they are trying to get to Buckleberry Ferry ASAP. And this is where Frodo makes the ill-fated decision to go on a shortcut. And they get lost because they're bushwhacking, they do not have the proper hiking boots, we're worried about ticks, and it's just, you know, a crisis. However, in this shortcut, rather fortuitously, they do eventually end up on Farmer Maggot's land, although that is well outside of the path that they were originally trying to take. Farmer Maggot is someone who helps them, and tells them that they just had another near miss with a different, or maybe the same, black rider. With Farmer Maggot, they then have dinner and set off to the ferry in his wagon with two G's, where they run into Mary. Thank goodness it's Mary, it's a friend, it's not a black rider. And the chapter ends with Mrs. Maggot giving a basket of mushrooms to Frodo, which is heartwarming because we learn earlier that as a lad, Frodo had tried to steal some mushrooms from Farmer Maggot. So his shortcut did cause a long delay, but in the end led him to mushrooms. I think that is an interesting evolution of that relationship is that like as a cheeky imp lad, Frodo probably feels so justified that he's like sneaking in and stealing all these mushrooms and now he recognizes that like he's an adult (laughs) farmer maggot is like maybe not just out to get him um but he has this just very like visceral memory of being 
you know, pretty aggressively, but maybe rightfully sort of stopped from taking these mushrooms from the land. Set upon by dogs, I believe, is the, the actual punishment that is beget to him. Right, right. So again, perhaps a bit too aggressive for a wee, a wee Frodo. And that this is like the one interaction he has with Farmer Maggot. So he's like built this whole uh, profile about him. And it perhaps isn't as accurate, and we come to learn that um, Farmer Maggot is not just, like, an evil man, hobbit, who who lives and sets his dogs upon just anybody, but instead maybe has, like, chilled in his old age, um, or has um, not perceived an actual threat from these these visitors, and so has, uh, has reined the dogs in. <laughs> There was a quote directly that I highlighted because of that, that evolution of their relationship on page 107. Frodo is talking to Farmer Maggot and says that he has been in terror of him and his dogs for over 30 years and then goes on to say, quote, it's a pity for I've missed a good friend. And I love that, as you said, he recognizes that we are all adults now and my preconception of what you were based on this one incident where I was in the wrong and you were defending your crop, your livelihood, uh, that there is more to you than that moment. And now we can be pals and your wife will give me a delicious selection of mushrooms for my journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the wagon with two Gs, which I like quite a bit that you've noted. Yeah. What is that? Is that is that like an actual European spelling of wagon or something? Or wh- where where is this coming from? I've never seen that before. I can honestly say to you, I have no idea, but here are two speculations that I'd like to make in this moment. One is that it's just a nice parallel to the two G's in maggot. (laughs) So it mirrors the spelling. (laughs) And the other is that Tolkien, for this beautiful and complex world that he's otherwise built, really didn't know how to convey that it's a wagon, but it's like a magical or in a Middle Earth, you know, situation wagon. And so he just added a G and was like, there it is. Now it's, now it's Middle Earth. <laughs> it's a wa- wagon. It's like mm-hmm. there's a, there's a emphasis on the second G there. Mm-hmm. Two hard Gs in this wagon. <laughs> Does not describe the drivers, just describes <laughs> the spelling of wagon. Wagagan. Wagagan. <sighs> yeah, um, that's good. I love the idea that we can just add the correct number of letters that match your name. Ellen has two L's, and people very frequently add two L's to my last name, although there is only one. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because there's two in my first name. And they're like, well, then there's just got to be a second one somewhere. Right. We need to even this out. Symmetry says <laughs> that we need to add another L. Yes. And so they've done it here with Maggot and Wagon. And I'm not going to Google it. I'm not going to look further into this mystery. I will just accept that as truth. Yeah, listeners, bless you. Do not email us about why this is spelled with two Gs. We are not interested in your correction. We have come to a conclusion on our own, and it is law. It is is truth as far as this podcast is concerned. So that, that was a good overview of what happened in the chapter. I think we... I think we touched on all the really important parts there. Mm -hmm. 
what examples of the theme did you see in this chapter that you want to bring up? Well, I think there is one in particular that I found especially notable for future chapters. And that is Frodo and Sam's relationship is already starting to evolve, or perhaps Frodo's perception of Sam is already starting to evolve pretty notably. So I believe this is on page, page 98 for me. No, page 97. And so Frodo and Sam are having a conversation and it had been Sam's dream of dreams to meet elves and he met the elves and Frodo's asking him kind of about that experience now that he's met them up close. And Frodo um, is surprised by Sam's response and the book reads, quote, Frodo looked at Sam rather startled, half expecting to see some outward sign of the odd change that seemed to have come over him. It did not sound like the voice of the old Sam Gamgee that he thought he knew, but it looked like the old Sam Gamgee sitting there, except that his face was unusually thoughtful. So I just thought that was a nice inclination that Frodo may have uh, misunderstood or only known peripherally who Sam was, and that as early as still being in the Shire but traveling together, he's coming to know Sam as more than perhaps his like manservant or gardener and that Sam when posed some big important questions about the world is able to engage rather thoughtfully and Frodo I think shows a little bit of himself in thinking that maybe Sam wouldn't have any of those deep thoughts. So I liked that example in particular. Yeah that's that is a a nice moment there. I had also looked at Frodo and Sam's relationship in this chapter but I didn't quite see it there. So I'm glad that you pointed that out and drew my attention to what I had I had missed. Mm-hmm. I think it's about four paragraphs before that is where I had highlighted their change in relationship. Where Sam is saying, and for people who love the movies like we do, he says the phrase, I never mean to, in regards to his pledge to stay with Frodo and to not leave him and to stay with him on this journey until the end. Mm-hmm. And for me, this verbalized pledge, quote, I never mean to. I am going with him if he climbs to the moon. That, to me, signaled a shift in their relationship, almost like a wedding vow of I am pledging out loud, I am saying it to the, this person that I am going to stay with you and stop anybody trying to harm you till the end. And I thought that was a shift in their relationship that we do know comes to be quite important in in the end of this story. Right. And even to that point of sounding much like a wedding vow, there's an exchange where uh, Sam says, very good, sir. And Frodo replies, you still mean to come with me? And Sam replies, I do. So really putting a a punctuation mark on that he is coming and not not much could deter him. And he he verbalizes that later in the quote that you read. I love that. That they that he actually says I do. I had missed that. Yeah, this is a this is a key relationship and it's one that as a kid I was like there are there is no sword fighting, there is no arrow shooting. There's very little drama to be had here, and so I'm uninterested in it. 
But now going back and reading it again uh, as an adult, I do find more value in this relationship. And I'm excited to sort of look closely and see what this friendship looks like as it evolves. You know, even in the first four chapters, it's, it's changed dramatically. Mm-hmm, for sure. So what other examples do you have of the theme from this chapter? Well, one was the relationship to the Shire itself. So both in the physical distance that they're covering and engaging in new landscapes, they are really having a time of it trying to make their way through the undergrowth, not being prepared for that kind of trip, it taking longer than they mean it to. But I think also more generally to the arc of the story, they are in a place that has otherwise been safe, where they've been able to take roads and take their time. And now with these couple of interactions or anecdotal information about pursuit, it feels less safe. They feel less comfortable being out in the open. And they are really having to forego some of the comfort that they maybe otherwise associate with their home in the Shire. And so I really felt like that, to your point from earlier, is sort of a degradation of the relationship they have to the Shire. Like, it's really eroding around them, the safety that they feel. So I thought that was something that I kind of noticed throughout, though perhaps a little less explicitly in the prose. Yeah, that reminds me of the quote that we we both brought up last week's episode, um, where Gildor is telling Frodo that you can't keep things out of the Shire. You can try to fence yourself in, but you can't fence everything out because Frodo is surprised at how quickly danger has found them in the Shire. So I agree that that is definitely a shift that they're having in their reality and in their relationship with their home. Right. And even, you know, as they are really trudging their way through this, you know, it sounds like intense nature situation, that there are some cues where there are like a long drawn wail, they say, quote, like the cry of some evil and lonely creature. It rose and fell and ended on a high piercing note. So even just thinking about the ambiance of the Shire, right? Like this is such an anomaly and they have this quick interaction about what do you think that was? And Um, Frodo's like, well, it's definitely nothing I've heard before. And then they don't say anything more about it. Like, it's not even worth discussing. We just have to keep moving on. And I think had they not otherwise had these moments or interactions with danger, they might have spent a bit more time talking like, well, what do you think it is? Should we go check it out? Is someone in trouble? Is an animal hurt? But because they've already had these quite foreboding interactions, they're now that much more willing to forego some curiosity about their their usual space and to, to get out of it as, as quick as possible, which as we've noted here and in other chapters is pretty unusual for hobbits who otherwise tend to stay put. Right, their their trust in the Shire is already gone at this point, in the Shire's ability to keep them safe. And so they are not curious to look further into what the noise is. Mm-hmm. And then I think my third example is really about what you had already mentioned as far as Frodo and Farmer Maggot. So I had noted the quote that you had read, but I'll say that the first sort of realization that they're on Farmer Maggot's land is... Frodo exclaiming, one trouble after another. And then Pippin asks, what's wrong with old Maggot? 
And you just, you get this then, this uh, backstory about how Frodo, again, had perhaps acted in an improprietous way and now is having to come face to face with perhaps someone he was not, uh, he was not as cool with when he was a kid. And what is that interaction going to look like? And how, uh, how is he going to navigate all of this when he's already got so many other things on his plate? And I think it's helpful there to know, Pippin says, uh, right after the quote that you already read, quote, he's a good friend to all the brandy bucks. So referring to Farmer Maggot, Pippin already has a good relationship with him, and I think that does allow Frodo to move past the fraught relationship that he has had in the past, because somebody that he is friends with is like, nope, that guy's good, we can trust him, we can talk to him, and it'll be fine. I think that wouldn't have happened in the same route if it was just Sam and Frodo traveling as a, as a pair. Right, yeah, because even to your point, <laughs> Pippin is so specific. He says, old Maggot is really a stout fellow if you leave his mushrooms alone. <laughs> Let's go into the lane and then we shan't be trespassing. Like, he's just like, all right, so just like don't take his mushrooms and like let's come up the lane normally and it's going to be fine. That was really the one thing that you shouldn't have done as a kid to get on his bad side. Right. Like, he's fine with everything else. Just don't trespass and take his mushrooms, you know? And then I think it's funny, too, because to his recollection, old maggot, as he's called, unfortunately, is like pretty chill about them coming in and doesn't seem to make any noticeable recognition of Frodo. But then later he says, and you, Mr. Baggins, though I dare say you still like mushrooms, he laughed. Ah, yes, I recognize the name. I recollect the time when young Frodo Baggins was one of the worst young rascals of Buckland. So I think it also provides an interesting comparison to what we've heard from maybe Bilbo or sort of adjacent to Bilbo's perspective in Bag's End, where Frodo is kind of this, if not celebrated, he has kind of this air of heightened interest around him. He is adjacent to someone who is interesting or a bit mysterious in the Shire, and Old Maggot is a guy who, like, knows him from when he was just a wee lad and is like, mm-hmm, I knew you. I knew you when you were a problematic little child thing, and uh, I am prepared to, like, bury the hatchet as well. <laughs> it makes me wonder who in my life I have a perceived wrong against from something I did as a child that was probably wrong, but now I'm holding it against some adult. Like, is there a relationship in my past that I need to examine as Frodo needs to do with Farmer Maggot? And I don't know the answer to that yet, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna think on it. I definitely think that is one thing I considered when thinking about the story for this week. So that is not my takeaway, but I do recommend folks as they're, as they're engaging with the episode today to really think about, okay, how did I come to these perceptions about others? And were they based in reality? And what, what did I contribute to that situation to perhaps bring about the result? And I'm choosing only to remember uh, the other person's actions. I think we all are guilty of doing that to some extent. So how can we be cautious then about painting someone so in such a dastardly light as Frodo does, um, and without really acknowledging that we contributed to that situation. 
Especially since I am pretty sure I was insufferable as a child. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone who set me down for being so, it was probably roundly deserved. I think to that point, there is this feeling, and it's something that I named in last week's episode, this idea where when we hold a perception of someone, we may create a situation where they either rise or fall to that expectation. So as Gildor is interacting with Frodo, at least in the initial parts of their conversation, he really seems to be setting a tone where like, he can't do things and he doesn't travel and ho, 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 you know these three words in High Elvish. And then later their relationship kind of evolves into a much more egalitarian, or at least for the point of that conversation, a little bit more equally footed to discuss the world at large and what Frodo is getting into. So I think also to be cautious about the expectations you hold for individuals, because sometimes they can be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you have other moments of the theme that you'd like to bring up and discuss? I have no other moments (laughs) of the theme. (laughs) Okay, well, I have one that is a stretch. Mm -hmm. So let's, you know, get out our elastic and we're going to see if we can't reach for this one. Great. It's like the essays in college where you would like increase the font size of the periods to really fill out those two pages. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we are changing the margins here to try to get to that last moment. Love it. So, and I think this is one of the more cinematic moments that we've had so far in this book where you're really caught in and at least in my mind's eye, I could picture exactly what was happening. And it's as... Frodo, Sam, and Pippin are traveling in the wagon with two Gs with Mr. Maggot. And we're hiding Frodo because we are in the gloom, peering out through the gloom, and start to hear the clip-clop, clip-clop of an approaching rider. And we think, everyone thinks, that it's going to be a black rider. And we are all very nervous. Frodo is hiding. Sam's getting ready to fight. But instead, it's Mary. As we learn who it is, our relationship almost with the night changes. It feels less menacing. The mist feels less scary as we learn what it contains. What do you make of that? I love that example, actually, and I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think it does become a bit more of an evolution in how we understand ourselves in that situation, too. Right, because we have this, uh, assuredly for the characters at least, a surge of adrenaline, fight or flight takes over, they're trying to protect Frodo. So we can see the evolving relationship even within the group, right? Who steps up, who's making these decisions, how quickly it's happening. So the characters themselves are changing before our very eyes, and it takes this impetus of danger, perceived or real, to really display that in action. But then more specifically, right, as this character becomes known to us and it's no longer a threat, we can see that tension really subdue and really alleviate a lot of maybe some of these previously determined decisions. And I think that also kind of shows how there can be, right, these these cues that call from us something different where we have the ability to shift within ourselves to meet the moment. So an evolving relationship with the night feels like, you know, the difference between 
you know, maybe feeling like someone is following you because you're alone, and then it turns out that they're going to the same store as you, and and the it's well lit, and it doesn't feel as as strange or as scary as it did a moment ago. So I think that is an interesting one, and I would agree a very cinematic moment as uh, it's uncovered that it is friend, not foe, who meets the wagon with two Gs. Yeah, the the text actually says to us, quote, as he came out of the mist and their fears subsided, he seemed suddenly to diminish to ordinary hobbit size. Like in their mind, they have built him up to be what they expect, which is a black rider and the size of a actual human. But then as we learn who he is and who he is not, he becomes the size that he actually is, a hobbit size. Right, right. No, I love that. And it becomes, like, even when they realize who it is, you know, the farmer is astonished. Everybody else is like, whoa, Mary, um, I can't believe that it's you. And then they kind of are left with this maybe foreboding, certainly warning statement from the farmer. But the, the farmer says, quote, it's been a queer day and no mistake, but all's well as ends well. Though perhaps we should not say that until we reach our own doors. I'll not deny that I'll be glad now when I do. So he has kind of this moment of, hmm, like we, this thing was called from us. We are clearly on edge. I feel better now that this situation, this immediate situation has resolved itself. But also, I really am going to be glad to be home. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't, I like that moment because it doesn't let the chapter end on just the positive of Mary's here and then Frodo laughs because he gets the basket of mushrooms but there is that still medium rare dread that is sort of floating in the soup i'm mixing my metaphors but we know we know what i'm saying medium rare dread that's floating in the soup yeah well crafted well crafted no i agree and i think right i think that is going to be a pretty notable tone shift then as we move into the next chapters of the book where um, there is going to be less familiar surroundings, there are going to be changing relationships with those that are on this journey, and the danger will certainly not lessen. So I think this is kind of, in my mind at least, I'm remembering this to be one of the last chapters where there are moments of both levity and familiarity that are offered through encountering Farmer Maggot. Well, with that, I am pleased with all of the examples that we were able to talk about and find with the theme in this week's chapter. Do you have an action item for us that you would like to share with the listeners so that we can all work a little bit on building our community? I do. And my action item is pretty simple. It's to explore your community. Go places you haven't gone before. And really think about why you haven't gone there before. Not to say that, you know, shortcuts make long delays is entirely accurate. And sometimes shortcuts can be a way of discovering new physical spaces in your community. So I encourage you to go to a restaurant you haven't been somewhere before, drive somewhere that you haven't seen, and really get familiar with all aspects of your community, not just those that you encounter in the daylight when not being pursued by a rider. Well, thank you, Anna, for another excellent discussion, and I'm so excited to talk about next week's chapter with you. 
Same. I'm really looking forward to chapter five. Today's podcast was brought to you by Golden Perch Pub, the best beer in East Farthing, or at least it used to be. Our music is by Robert Zahn and Simon Dom. If you have thoughts on today's episode or homework assignment, send us a voicemail or email at infellowshippodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to take care of your community, stay hydrated, and thank you for joining us today in fellowship. Earlier this week, I sat at a chair at my kitchen table that I had never sat in before and was shocked at how different the apartment looked from that one vantage point. Right. Travel your community, sit in a different chair at your kitchen table. (laughs) See how the light hits that one potted plant in the corner differently and what that makes you think about. Mm -hmm. These are all valid examples of exploring your community.